So today we conclude our message series on interdependence. You just heard, we're all in this together. And I was trying to think of the ways I would sort of sum this up and bring this to conclusion as we were talking about, if you show those slides. We started four weeks ago with self and move outward into community and world and today talking about interdependent spirit, talking about interdependent spirituality. I thought of a way that I could really sort of sum this up and bring this to a close. And I thought of the words of Daniel Berrigan, who some of you might know that name. He is still within the Catholic tradition, remains a very radical priest, very often in all sorts of movements within the church and beyond it for equality, for full human decency and human relationship. And he prayed once at a particularly rough time, I think it was during the Vietnam War, and he was very opposed to that military action. Daniel Berrigan prayed, O Lord, send us mystics with hands. Send us mystics with hands. Now, that's poetry. All great prayer really is poetry. What do you mean by that? One of my favorite stories that illustrates it actually goes back to a thinker I really like whose name I brought up quite a bit, I imagine, Martin Buber. He's the thinker, the theologian of what he calls dialogue, the idea that between us exists this holy interaction if we do not treat each other and do not treat our world as just an it, as a means to an end, if we can look at each other and share with each other and recognize there that we in and of ourselves have worth and dignity and sacredness. And if we recognize that, then we grow. Well, Martin Buber learned this the hard way, as many of us often do when we grow in our world. One day, and this was before World War I, well before the Nazis came to power and Martin Buber as a Jew had to flee Germany. He was actually able to get out. He was one of the lucky ones. Martin Buber was sitting in his office at the university where he taught. And Buber was well known not just as a scholar of mysticism, of the Hasidic tradition within Judaism, but he was also known as a wonderful practitioner of it. He just didn't teach about it in terms of content, but was part of his life. And he was sitting in his office one day in the midst of this, as he described it, Amazing euphoric reverie. Other traditions call it non-dual awareness. Some call it the realization of the full light within us. Some call it the experiencing the full presence of God. But he was there and experiencing this full sense of union, of peace. And into his office walked a young student of his, a young student who was very, very troubled who didn't know the right way to go in life, and he was there to see Professor Buber because he wanted his wisdom that he had to share. And what he said is that, I feel a duty as a German to sign up to fight in this war, what we now know as World War I. What can you tell me? I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I don't know what the right thing is to do. What should I do? I feel this call of duty. And Buber was so lost in his own mystical reverie in his own sense of peace and wonder and unity, that he can't even barely remember what he said to this young man who wanted his counsel, who wanted his time, who wanted his trust. He sort of gave him an off-the-cuff answer, and the young man, as Buber recalls it, sort of just slumped out of the office. Martin Buber found out within the next year that this young man had in fact signed up to serve for Germany in the First World War and had died in the trenches. Martin Buber might have thought after that that perhaps he could have helped the young man make a different decision if he had been there for him, if he had paid attention to him, if he had not gotten lost in his own private sense of unity with the world, if he had been, in other words, 
a mystic with hands. A mystic with hands. That's what we're talking about with interdependent spirituality. Not just retreating into our own private realm, as sometimes even I like to do, our own private realm, where we're just apart from the world, where religion becomes an abstraction. And on the other hand, I knew a lot of these types in college, the real hardcore social activist types, who really could be mean and nasty. Sometimes you wondered about why all the change they were working toward, what end was it going to achieve if they were going to be the same old SOBs when we got to when that change had come around. I think that's important. That's what we're talking about, having mystics with hands. People who can experience that sense of peace that surpasses all understanding as the Psalms talk about it and not turn away from each other and also in serving humanity. Never forget, never forget that there is this deeper realm of spirituality into which we are all invited. I wanted to show you an example, not just tell you about it, but show you an example of interdependence in action this morning. Some of you may have seen this this past week on the Olbermann Show. I'm going to show it to you and then explain what's going on if you haven't seen it. Go ahead. Joshua Allen Harris is a conceptual artist who literally takes discarded pieces of garbage bags, tapes them together in such a way that he puts them over subway grates. And at the very moment where the subway runs underneath and the air shoots up, and if you've been in New York City or even downtown Philly, you know what it's like to be over one of those grates. You want to move out of the way. Well, what he does, what Joshua Allen Harris does, is he captures that wind, he captures that air, and he creates something absolutely magical out of it. Think about it. Subway air, garbage bags, City streets, the kinds of things that, as Keith Olbermann editorialized about, some New Yorkers didn't even stop and see, didn't even wonder why the Loch Ness Monster was emerging up out of the underground. But think about that ability to see the world in such a way that it is enchanted, that it is enchanted that even commonplace things take on a meaning that we didn't know was there until we put them together in brand new, wonderful kinds of ways, and there we can see creation going on in our midst. I mean, think about it. You take us apart. I read that about four weeks ago from that wonderful book of popular science, a short history of nearly everything, that if you took us apart atom by atom, all that would be left is a small pile of atomic dust. Not much at all. And yet when the elements come together, something magical, something magical comes to be. Our lives come to be. I love that in that video, in that video of Loch Ness Monster rising up from underneath the subway grates, the thing that animates it is the air. The ancient Israelites, the Latin word for spirits, it is air, it is oxygen, it is what enables all of us to move and breathe and have our being the most basic, basic thing. And actually I've gotten a sort of spiritual development part of my practice that really helps me, especially when I'm anxious. When I'm anxious and I can feel that breath get caught right here and, you know, the hyperventilating almost always starts and I can feel that maybe, you know, I want to rush headlong into that next moment and I can't be here right now and just focus, I turn it around. Instead of saying, I am trying to breathe the air, what I now say is the air is trying to breathe me. The air is trying to breathe me. I just need to relax and let it happen. I just need to let the air do what the air wants to do. 
starting with that breath, starting with the animating life force of all of us, letting it fill us and that returning it to where it came from. That is why we practice meditation every week in our service, because if we cannot simply sit with the breath, there is much that we will not be able to do. So interdependent spirituality is about, very much like what Joshua Harris did, seeing our world with a sense of appreciative eyes, relating to the mystery and the meaning of this existence, and from it, drawing depth and sustenance. Interdependent spirituality is a way of being in the world. It is less about having faith. You know, when people say to you, perhaps you have some friends from other traditions or co-workers who say, do you have faith? Do you have it? As if it was a content that could be captured and then passed on to you. Tag, you're it. You have faith now. Pass it on. I don't think that's what faith is. Faith is instead a way of relating to our lives and this universe in which we face what is there, love who we are, and give what we can. Face what is there, love who we are, and give what we can. Remember that the ancient Israelites, and I love this, and they were a tribal religion, their religion that in many ways gave us an image of God or images of God that were entirely all too human, a God who was very often petty and murderous and vindictive and playing favorites. But when the ancient Israelites first named their understanding of God, they did not start with a noun. They started with a verb. They said, God is, is. It's like the divine Popeye when God first named God's self to Moses. I am what I am. See, I think what they're saying there is it's slippery. It is not a content and you can just say, I have it and it's mine. It is something that we are. It is the way that we live our life. It is a verb enacted. See, spirit is not one thing. God is not a thing. My favorite theologian was Paul Tillich, who was a contemporary of Martin Buber's. And he lived through a time in our lives, a time in the world, in which people were wonderful at making idols. Making idols of things that they thought would have more power than them. And if they got in the right relationship to those idols of more power, then their lives would be safe. He said, no, that's not what real spirituality is about. That's not what real faith is about. That's not what God is about. And I love how he defined God in two ways. He said, ground of being, the place from which everything else springs forth and also as a verb. God is your ultimate concern. That means if you are ultimately concerned about the chair that you are sitting in right now, that is your God. But he said, take a little bit deeper. Ultimate concern. Not ultimate concept. Not ultimate thought. Not even ultimate good. The state of being ultimately concerned. Caring enough. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about entering into relationship with this world in such a way that we awaken and we do not turn away. One of my favorite writers who talks about that is is a guy named Marcus Borg. And I shared these words with you last fall. I want to take them back in for a second here. He talks about theism. And this is a form of understanding the divine, understanding the holy that Marcus Borg and people like Paul Tillich reject. Because it says God is up there, out there, and occasionally, much like the Lone Ranger, rides into history to save us from ourselves. It's another way of understanding what is holy What is God? And that's pantheism, which says that chair that you are sitting on, that is God. Then there's a third way. Panentheism. I put these words up there because how many of you have actually heard the word panentheism before? Okay. A couple of you. Congratulations. You're in the minority. 
Panentheism says that everything shares of the quality of divinity. Everything shares in the quality of the Spirit, but even more than saying you are it or we are it, it is between us. It is all around us. There is no place we can go where it is not. And so instead of talking about God who is up there, out there, controlling our lives, playing favorites, doling favorites out perhaps to this nation or that nation, depending upon how well we establish the divine law as some talk about it, it is not that. The kind of God that Marcus Borg is talking about that, the kind of interdependent spirituality, is really much more about that quality of relationship. It's not about how much knowledge we amass. It is not about how much power we have. It is about how much we commit ourselves to loving our world and loving our lives so that we are able to awaken to what is really here. What is here in the midst of us. This miracle, this meaning. So that we're not, frankly, like those people on the streets of New York City. And I say this as a former New Yorker myself. When something as amazing as a Loch Ness Monster rises up out of the subway grate, we say, eh, and move on by. We don't want to have that attitude in life, just eh, and move on by. We want to awaken so that we are truly here right now. Right here, right now. One of my favorite readings, probably next to the Serenity Prayer, my single favorite reading about the nature of spirituality is by Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist teacher, and I've shared it with you before. I'm going to share it again today, and I'll share it again with you in the future. She says this. She says this, and I think it is as true as true can be. Spiritual awakening is frequently described as a journey to the top of the mountain. We leave our attachments behind and our worldliness behind and slowly make our way to the top. At the peak, where the air is clear, we have transcended all pain. The only problem with this metaphor is that we leave all the others behind. We leave behind our alcoholic brother, our schizophrenic sister, our tormented and in pain animals, our friends who are confused. Their suffering continues, unrelieved by our own personal escape. You see, in the process of discovering our true nature, the journey goes down not up. It's as if the mountain pointed toward the center of the earth instead of reaching into the sky. When we grow spiritually, we move inward and down however we can. We explore the reality and the unpredictability of insecurity and even pain, and we try not to push it away at our own pace, without speed, and without aggression. We move down and down and down and in and toward with us as well move millions of others our companions in awakening from fear because at the bottom we discover water the healing water of compassion right down there in the thick of things in the thick of all of our lives and the depth that they contain we discover the love that will not die Shadron says I love that idea that experience, it's actually not an idea, it is an experience, it's a relationship. That right down there, right down here, right in there, in the very heart of things, we discover a love, a spirit that will not die, that finally has no name. See, that is not living a faith that is based on some fantasy. It is not having a faith that is some escape. This is practicing a religion of relating to reality 
at its deepest level. See, if we allow ourselves, and very often it is a matter of allowing ourselves, not understanding it first, but allowing ourselves to relate to this deepest reality in our lives, we will hear that call that summons us back into relationship with everything that is, maybe not all at the same time, but that call into relationship with everything that is. There is an ancient story of the difference between heaven and hell. There's a rabbi, it comes from the Jewish tradition, who one night has a dream and he encounters God and God says, I will show you hell. I will show you what hell is. I will show you the worst place there is. And at first, the rabbi is confused because the rabbi walks into a room that at first what he smells, smells wonderful. There is a pot of soup in the middle of it, in the middle of it. And it is filling the room with an amazing aroma. But around this pot, around this pot of soup, there are seated individuals who are famished. In the midst of all this abundance that is right there, they are starving. They are starving to death and their faces bear all the characteristics of those who feel there is no hope. And then the divine says to the rabbi, I will show you heaven. And they walk out sort of into another room, if you will. And yet it looks exactly like the first room they entered. The first thing the rabbi senses is the smell, the aroma. It is wonderful. It is beautiful. Except in this room, where the same kind of pot of soup is right there in the middle, is right there in the middle, all the people are happy. All the people are happy. And he says, show me hell again. I want to go back there. He sees the problem with hell is that, again, because this is a fanciful kind of story, the people have arms that will not bend at the elbows. And so they sit there in front of that pot of soup being unable to feed themselves. Their arms will not bend. And then he remembers why heaven is heaven. Because in heaven they have learned to feed each other. What they have done is they have taken those arms that cannot bend and they take what they can with their spoon and they turn and they feed their neighbor. And they are fed, that's right, and they are fed by their neighbor. See, it is amazing how much reality is just reality and is just there. But when we bring eyes of appreciation to it, when we bring eyes that understand that so much of life, the depth of life exists in relationship, we will change who we are and we will change our relationship to that reality. And much like that garbage bag in subway air, we will transform into something wonderful and yes, frankly, even a little bit odd at times. But we will experience a new form of creation. See, finally, those people in that story, I believe, remained in hell because they wouldn't think beyond what they knew. They think, I feed myself, and you feed yourself, and you feed yourself, and you feed yourself. But they wind themselves up in a situation in which that is not possible, and they will not adjust, they will not adapt, and they will not find a new way of being. And so it is important when we have the capacity to exist in a new relationship with each other in this world, we recognize that at times that will test us. That will test us and we will be challenged and it will not feel comfortable. It will not feel comfortable at first. The image I like to describe what this process is like is that if we find ourselves in a new relationship with something and we feel frozen up, you know, that fight, flight, freeze response, if you ever heard those psychological terms when we are in a situation in which we don't know how to deal with it, well, that freeze response, I think, is like an ice cube. It wants to stay locked up and tight. 
It's really interesting. If you remember your Dante, if you read the Divine Comedy years ago, you know that the ultimate circle, the very center of hell, is the opposite of hot. It is ice cold. There is no movement left there whatsoever. And so perhaps if you find yourself in the situation of entering into a new relationship, a new relationship with the world, with each other, and you feel frozen, recognize that it will take time. It will take time. And at that point, you have two choices. You can take a blowtorch to the ice cube and say, I'm going to melt away instantaneously. That will make you melt. It also will make you boil. Recognize that sometimes in our lives, if we are to learn and to grow and to enter into that deeper relationship with our lives, all that is required of us is just learn to melt. Not fight it, but go with it. Let nature assume its course once again and allow you to resume the shape that is most natural. In that way, we become unlocked, unblocked, unfrozen, and begin to fully inhabit all of our lives. And we know that even if we feel locked up, even if we feel right now in our lives that you are an ice cube contained, it won't always be so if we can just learn, learn with patience and with love to let it be and to know that we cannot do everything all at once. I learned this lesson just in the last couple of weeks. I recently got a gift of XM radio. I love satellite radio. I love it too much. <laughs> it is not my ultimate concern, but it's far too big a concern than it should be, to be honest with you. It is an attachment. I love it. I have a lot of late night meetings. I drive home. I get to listen to Yankees games. You can boo after. Don't do it now, please. It's a wonderful little gift. And the other thing that I recognized about it, I didn't even know this when I first got it as a gift when I requested it, is that it takes me through an entire lifetime of the music that I love. I think it's stations 40 through 45. For those of you who are big pop music fans, you'll like stations 20 through 33, and no XM radio is not giving me a stipend for talking about it. 40 through 54, a lot of alternative music, punk, ska, alternative kind of stuff that I grew up listening to. And I got to tell you, that first week when I had XM radio... I did not listen to one single song straight through <laughs> because I was not pleased enough to simply silt and melt into the song that was. I had to know what was on every other station simultaneously. Ooh, 30 seconds of this, but there might be something better up on 54. Ooh, something's good on 54. 41 might be promising. See, that's part of learning to relate to reality on that deeper level is to take what is there. Take what is there and trust that in time you will discover what is next to come. See, if we can do one thing in time, we can do anything. But if we try to do everything at once, we will do nothing. That's what XM Radio taught me. Relate to one thing at a time as fully as you can and then trust that the next thing will come on down the line and then we will be able to hold it in our hands fully. Hold it into our hands fully and understand in that kind of right expectation and right relationship, things can be perfect even if they are not everything all at once. I think one of the most misguided things about religion in our world is that it gives us this understanding that we can escape, not like Pema Chodron was talking about, but escape into this realm of perfection and purity and move beyond everything. I heard a really funny example of this this past week. How many of you know a book by a guy named A.J. Jacobs called The Year of Living Biblically? You heard about that? Okay, a few more of you. What he did 
what he did is that he, as to the best of his ability, tried to live for an entire calendar year exactly as the ancient Israelites lived with all of their laws and dictates and codes. It was a strange and challenging year for A.J. Jacobs. Everything, even stuff that Orthodox Jews now don't do exactly, he tried to do exactly. He ate no rock badger, for example, because in the Bible you're not allowed to eat rock badger. Not quite sure what modern animal that equates to, but don't eat it if you want to live biblically. Now, he was also married at this time, and I think about six, seven months in, his wife started to get real damn tired. Real damn tired of this. And so she played a really cool kind of joke on him. Part of the year of living biblically is that he could not be in contact with any woman who was, get a little indelicate here, having a period, menstruating. You know, that was unclean. He was not to have contact. And so she, A.J. Jacobs' wife, was really fed up one day. And what she did is she sat on every surface in their apartment when she was having, not actually when she was naked, but you know, when she was undergoing her period, and he had no place to sit. You see, that's the kind of religion. Now, again, I have I know friends who are Orthodox Jews. I'm not talking about individual Orthodox Jews, and there is many more subtle and different ways of interpreting the religion. He had a very literalistic understanding, very literalistic understanding. But the joke that she played on him was that, you know what? There never is any completely pure and pristine place to sit. Where we are sitting is where we are sitting to learn to take the one seat, to learn to inhabit who we are fully and not to quest after some elusive purity or perfection. Kind of like a story from Nasruddin, a Muslim teacher. He was many years ago, many, many centuries ago. He was talking to a young charge, a young student of his. And the young student was about to get married. And he said, teacher, have you ever, your thought ever, ever, you know, ever thought of getting married yourself? And he said, well, Many years ago, I decided that I would be married. And so I traveled all throughout these lands, all throughout these Arabic lands, and I went in search of the perfect woman. Went in search of the perfect woman. And one day I thought I had found her. She was gorgeous, and she was learned, and she was, I thought, just wonderful. But our families didn't get along. And so, there goes that perfect woman. And then I found another and she was gorgeous and learned, and our families got along. But her interpretation of the sacred scriptures were not exactly as mine were. And so I moved along. And then finally, one day, I found her. I found the perfect one for me. I found the perfect mate. She was exactly everything that I would want. And she agreed with my interpretation of the scriptures. And she was just all that I could hope for. And the student said, well, did you marry her? Unfortunately not. She was looking for the perfect man. <laughs> Flip that story around, man, woman, any two people, any two people. When we look for that quality of perfection, we will not find it. And we will keep ourselves out of relationship, out of learning to recognize the sacred quality of each of our lives. Some of you know the phrase namaste. Namaste, it is both an act and a recognition. Very often it is with hands clasped and bowing that we recognize the divinity, the light, the goodness inside of each and every one of us. 
Now, we do that not because we recognize the purity. We do that because we are interdependent. For those of you who say, namaste. I sometimes hear people say, and it's very common in kind of new age terms, well, I have my truth. Now, we all have our own interpretation of what wisdom is. But I got to tell you people, there is no such thing as your own truth. There's your own interpretation, your own perspective on it. But there is no such thing as James Luther Adams, a Unitarian thinker, said, there is no such thing as an immaculate conception of an idea. There is no such thing as just our own. Everything we have and everything we are is a product of, yes, our own striving and our own aspiration and our own desire to grow, but it also is a trust given us by this universe that we, if we are wise, will learn to hold and hold gently so that it can be ours for a time and even, much like, much like that Loch Ness monster, come back to earth when the spirit and the air has left us. Learning to hold what is ours and hold it gently is a way of living interdependently with this world. Augustine said, and this may be your spiritual language, it may not, but I think the truth is the same. Augustine said that God is always trying to give new things, new relationships, new experiences into our hands. But we are only able to accept those new things, those new offerings, if our hands are not too tightly clutching to what we already have. So if we hold on too tightly, if we will not learn to let go from time to time, then we will not be able to accept what is new and what we have to learn in this life. And so I would ask all of you that together we can become mystics with hands, open hands, Hands that don't put up the stop sign to each other and say, not only will I not hold on, I will also just learn to let go all the time. It is trying to have that delicate balance of holding what is placed into our hands as a trust, learning to love it, hold it for a while, and then give it back, and then receive again. Hold it for a while, give it back, and then receive again. It is in this art that we learn to live fully. Amen. And may you live in blessing.